0: Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a one of a kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. This week, we are rolling out another set of conversations for our series, Closing the Gap, where we highlight racial and socioeconomic disparities in Chicago. And the people working to close those gaps. This time around we are taking a deep dive into transportation. You'll hear about transit deserts and walking and biking while black and much more. Today we're kicking off the series with one of the world's most respected thought leaders on global cities. Julian Adjaman is professor of urban and environmental policy and planning at Tufts University. He's the author of many books Julian originated the concept called Just Sustainabilities, and he joins us to explain how transit justice and equity fit into his concept of cities and city life. Julian, welcome to Reset.
1: Thank you. Um, Glad to be here. Can you talk,
0: first of all, about your area of research and and tell us how you were drawn to the work?
1: Yeah, well, the idea of Just Sustainabilities came about, about 20, 25 years ago. In 1992, there was a major world conference on sustainable development, the Rio Conference, the Earth Summit, and out of it came this idea of Agenda 21, a sustainable development agenda for the 21st century. And I and others were very excited, but we were really quite disappointed that the focus of the notion of sustainable development was really about environmental sustainability. And we knew that to be truly sustainable, issues of social justice, welfare, social needs would need to be incorporated in this concept of sustainable development. So our critique was what we called the equity deficit of much sustainable development thinking in the 90s and early 2000s. So we came up with this idea of just sustainabilities as an idea that was about how to improve people's quality of life into the future and now in a just and equitable manner while living within the important limits of supporting ecosystems. It was a really integral concept that brought the justice issue that was being raised by the environmental justice movement, but it brought it into this bigger picture of sustainability. Really, that's the platform for much of my work now, whether it's on sharing cities, whether it's on food justice, whether it's on issues of uh, urban design and access to public spaces, especially amongst disadvantaged groups. So Just Sustainability is, in a sense, my platform.
0: And it comes with four conditions. What are those?
1: So the four conditions are how do we guarantee an improvement in people's quality of life and well-being? How do we meet the needs of both present and future generations? And that's intra- and intergenerational equity. How do we do this with a focus on justice and equity in terms of recognition, process, procedure and outcome? And I just want to focus in on the word recognition there. This is a really important precursor to justice. And at the moment, we have the best example in terms of Black Lives Matter. It's a cry for recognition around the world indigenous people lgbtq groups are crying out for recognition saying that we belong we matter recognize us because if we don't do that how can we ever have any form of reconciliation or further down the line any forms of you know restorative justice or reparations so the issue of recognition i think is very important and then the final condition is that we have to do all of this while living within the limits of supporting ecosystems. So just sustainability is is very cognizant of the concept of limits, environmental limits, but we've got to be much better at living out the human enterprise in a more socially just and equitable manner.
0: You also state that who can belong in cities will determine what cities can become. What do you mean by
1: that? Well, as an urban planner, And as a sustainability advocate, we're always dreaming of what our place can become. Our city can become more sustainable, more healthy, more resilient, more green. Becoming is very important. We must never stop dreaming about what can become. But who gets to belong in our cities? Number one, our cities are on stolen land, indigenous land. We have erased in North America the indigenous presence. Number two, we are displacing communities through gentrification. We are moving homeless people on and out into another municipality or another community. We are becoming increasingly xenophobic against immigrants. We are denying belonging to many, many, many groups in society. And so my point is, if we're dreaming about what cities can become, and we are denying belonging to many people, then our cities are just going to be elite spaces. So, my dream, if you like, is that we, as urban planners and as politicians, refocus on who gets to belong, who has a right to the city, and then our cities will become more thriving, more sharing, more caring places. I want to see issues of empathy, human dignity re-enter our policy debates and That can be done through this inclusive concept of belonging. In some European countries, they talk about social inclusion. This is like that, but it's a much more broad recognition that there are many entities in our city, and our cities are now cities of difference. How do we coexist in these shared spaces and become what we truly can become, rather than our cities just becoming elite spaces?
0: Well on that same note you say we must therefore act on both belonging and becoming together using just sustainabilities as the anchor or face deepening spatial and social inequities and inequalities what is spatial justice julian
1: Well, spatial justice, think about social justice. We all know that term, and that means that our opportunities in life should not be predicated on our race, our class, our gender, our sexualities. Spatial justice says opportunities should not be distributed geographically. And one thing I do know about Chicago is that you have a huge spatial mismatch or a spatial divide between North and South Chicago. I mean, that's spatial injustice. If you look at St. Louis, the Del Mar Divide in St. Louis, on one side of Del Mar Boulevard, it's largely African-American. The other side is largely white. The spatial mismatch between the two means that your zip code is more important than your genetic code in determining your lifespan, your opportunities. Spatial justice is, I think, a concept that is very useful for us to look at. And one thing that we're very fortunate in having is a tool that geography has given us, and it's a tool that is as important as the map was uh, way back in the day, But and that's geographic information systems. Mm-hmm. We can map spatial inequities in our cities, and lo and behold, those spatial inequities are largely related to race and income in the United States. And urban planning, uh, you know, was predicated around spatial segregation. You have to look at Minneapolis. You can look at any city to see the effect of decades of racialized covenants, racialized zoning or single family zoning, um, redlining. We have spatially segregated our cities Intentionally, this was not by accident, it was by design.
0: Uh, Julian, let's shift now and talk a bit more about solutions and best practices, because you've done case studies on cities all over the world. So what US cities or cities abroad, would you say, are doing things right?
1: Well, you know, there's a lot of good practice around, and it depends on what particular aspect of city life you want to look at. Let me take, for instance, food. The city of Belo Horizonte in Brazil has the world's best food security or food justice program, and it is actually implemented by the city government. And he works like this. In Back in 1992, there was a mayor who came in. He'd grown up in poverty, in food insecure environments. And his big thing was, um, this city, nobody should go hungry. Now, the country of Brazil has a, a constitutional right to food. And they built on this by creating a food system that the city actually runs. So they brought all the food-related functions of different departments into one particular directorate. They fix the price of certain foodstuffs, okay, so that the private sector retailers in Belo Horizonte can sell at whatever price they want to people who aren't on benefits, but people on benefits get fixed price for certain foods. They developed a network of people's restaurants, popular restaurants, which were designed for people on low incomes, but a lot of students use them, and I visited one, and these are places where people eat food with dignity. And I think that's a really important concept that they instilled. Food should not be something that makes people lose their dignity. Not having food makes you lose your dignity. And if we lose our dignity, we lose part of our humanity. So food with dignity, social justice, controlling the supply in terms of making sure that food prices are affordable. This is done by a city in a capitalist nation. And successive mayors, now that first mayor who implemented this was from the Socialist Worker Party, but successive mayors have not dismantled the system because it's very popular. And the food writer Francis Moore Lappe calls Belo Horizonte the city that abolished hunger. Imagine what a city in the US could do. Belo Horizonte spends about 2% of its budget in fixing these prices, and it does it in cahoots with. Private sector retailers. So, this is not some form of imposition. This is working with a private public partnership to improve the food status of every individual in the city. So that's, that's a food-related one. If we go to Medellin in Colombia, uh, Medellin in the 80s was the cocaine capital of the world. It now is one of the most innovative cities through the principal, again, mayoral vision of social urbanism, which bears great correspondence, if you like, to just sustainability, prioritizing mm-hmm. equity and social justice in the allocation of resources and Medellin is in a kind of valley and up on the hillsides are the communists or the favelas, the so-called slums. And they've developed a metro system, metro cable of cable cars going up into the uh, hill settlements so that the people can come down into the valley. They've implemented participatory budgeting whereby people can decide on how the city allocates its resources. They've developed libraries and schools up in the uh, hill settlements. So this idea of social urbanism is about revitalizing the urban commons, bringing in the poorer people the socially disadvantaged into the life of the city so there's two examples and we've got other examples you know Boston is about to go through a mayoral election and some of the candidates are proposing some incredible policy ideas for instance one candidate has a food justice agenda for Boston and she locates this problem she says food justice is racial justice we need to decenter you know white supremacy from local food systems and we need to prioritize access issues for those who are food insecure and of course covid has made many more people food insecure so right We are getting visionary statements, I think, coming from mayoral candidates in the United States. And if implemented, this food justice agenda would change Boston's food insecurity solution very, very quickly.
0: What can the government alone do to bring about some solutions and what elements might require public and private partnerships?
1: Well, you know, I'm very keen as an urban planner that governments change the narrative. So, you know, again, another instance for Boston, because there is going to be a mayoral change. And interestingly, there are six candidates, two men and four women, and they're all of colour at the moment. So Boston is quite likely to have its first elected mayor of colour. This is a great moment to change the narrative about who we are in Boston. By changing the narrative, I think you change the agenda and people's vision about what is possible. Because too often, mayors just go along with what they've probably always done and we just get the same tired old paradigm. But if you change the vision, the agenda, the narrative we can then look forward to a change in budgetary priorities, allocation priorities. I think there's many things that government can do. Government as enabler is, I think, one role that I want to see. Government as facilitator. If you take the cities of, say, Amsterdam and Seoul, both cities have declared themselves sharing cities, and are facilitating sharing hubs they are facilitating and incubating sharing partnerships in the city of seoul the city itself denied access to uber and they facilitated their own city based car sharing networks amsterdam has done huge amounts of work on inculcating the sharing economy and providing fertile ground for relationships with nonprofits and private sector enterprises. So I think you know the city as enabler, the city as facilitator, the growing medium in many ways for these social innovations. I think that's a very important role to take. And you know, cities like Chicago and Boston have got resources abundance compared to uh, Belo Horizonte or Medellin that we can do this it really takes I think vision but I think it also takes partnerships with the flourishing nonprofit sector that we have in most of our cities here in the US and it takes I think a vision of what I call co-production imagine for instance a city park in a not-so-wealthy neighborhood and the park is used in maybe ways that are deemed antisocial. What if the city revisited the park and thought about how do we co-design this park, co-manage this park, and co-program this park with the community? I cannot but think that the park would be socially policed by the local community, the community would feel involved in that. So I want to see cities enter more co-productions with local communities, not just parks, but other ways as well. You talk about transportation, you know, and you're going to be talking about it more. One of my students and I are doing some research on at the moment. You know, this revelation to me, two things have happened to really change public transit. Number one was the entry of Uber and Lyft and other ride sharing services 10 years ago. Second is COVID. So what do we do? We measure public transit ridership and it's going down and that defines the narrative. Oh, public transit going down Mm. let's defund public transit what if we change the narrative by changing the metric What if we looked at access-based metrics? Let's look at demand-based metrics. You will find that the demand for public transit has never been higher. People want public transit. So that changes the narrative. Well, it would change people's attitudes to public transit, but it would also change, I think, the budgeting of public transit as well and the allocation of resources. So again, it's this idea of what are the metrics we're using? Are they metrics that are showing deficit or are they metrics that are showing an asset and access-based metrics, I think, in Chicago or Boston or any city. So let's move towards different metrics.
0: Well, let's talk, before I let you go, about the Biden administration. Right now, they're promising a major infrastructure bill. So I wonder what you would hope to see in that bill.
1: Well, again, I don't want to become overtly political on this, but I really like the way that the Biden administration are defining an infrastructure not just as bridges and railways and roads, which is the traditional way, uh, but they're defining it more in terms of physical and social infrastructures we have to think of infrastructure not simply as the engineering of our cities but as the social capital and the networks the benefits of interaction the spaces and places so i see infrastructure as being a much more inclusive a much more intersecting set of ideas than simply you know the physical stuff so i want to see investments in anything that increases social inclusion, uh, social welfare, you know, people's access to transportation, people's access to food that is nutritious and culturally relevant. So like the Biden administration, I see a very broad need for a concept of infrastructure that really comes to people's places of work or dwelling rather than simply being those things like roads and railways and bridges that are very important but they're not about improving people's quality of life necessarily. Infrastructure in terms of networks and human connections I think is very important and it's a broad and bold concept and some people don't agree with it but I think we need to think about that because you know a bridge 10 miles away looks very good but is that going to affect my life here or their lives there. No, it's not. So there's what I would call a first and last mile problem here. How do we inculcate ideas about infrastructure and building physical structures with social infrastructures that really improve people's quality of life?
0: That was Julian Adjaman. He's Professor of Urban and Environmental Policy and Planning at Tufts University. He's also author of numerous books, including Just Sustainability's Development in an Unequal World and Sharing Cities, a Case for Truly Smart and Sustainable Cities. He just helped us kick off the latest installment of our Closing the Gap series. Julian, it's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And that's today's Reset. Keep your ears on the pod this week as we talk to more people who are closing the gap when it comes to transportation. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Enjoy the nice weather. We'll meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more